Chronic Illness Therapist podcast. This is meant to be a place where people with chronic illnesses can come to feel heard, seen, and safe while listening to mental health therapists and other medical professionals talk about the realities of treating difficult conditions. This might be a new concept for you, one in which you never have to worry about someone inferring that it's all in your head. We dive deep into the human side of treating complex medical conditions and help you find professionals that leave you feeling hopeful for the future. I hope you love what you learn here, and please consider leaving a review or sharing this podcast with someone you love. In this episode, we will hear from Alex, who is actually my neighbor, um, and she's been living with type 1 diabetes for her whole life, um, since she was three. And what I love most about this episode is that it's kind of like a crash course in acceptance and commitment therapy. She talks about mindfulness skills and listening to your body, kind of hearing um, what your body has to tell you during a low blood sugar moment, a high blood sugar moment. She talks a lot about kind of um, her rock bottom and and what that looked like and how she got out of that place in her life. And throughout the entire episode, uh, it just is really cool to kind of hear how Alex figured out all these different ways to kind of get through these really difficult moments um, through persevering and creating a community that really uh, works for her. Why don't you start a little bit by maybe telling us kind of your history with type one diabetes, um, what that has been like for you, maybe, um, yeah, just start anywhere that feels, feels good for you. Okay. Um, well, I was diagnosed when I was three years old. Uh, so my mom has two older brothers that are both type one. And, um, she was the one who kind of recognized the signs and the symptoms and she figured it out. And then they took me to the hospital and it just confirmed what everybody had already figured out. But, um, it runs, it runs pretty strongly in my family. So, um, it hit early for me. And, um, so I'm 33 now I've been type one for 30 years. And um, not sure. There's, I mean, there's so much to it. I don't. I don't even yeah, know. Like, yeah. No, that's relevant. That's a great, a great starting point. Um, like, yeah, how old you were, and kind of how you kind of got that diagnosis. Or and it sounds like your mom already was familiar with some of the symptoms and signs. Um, what was it like for you growing up then? What did treatment look like? Um, you know, were you taking insulin were you um and and what was that process like for you maybe more you can talk logistically or emotionally but I find that the two usually go hand in hand so yeah for sure um so when I was diagnosed uh the technology that we had available at the time was not nearly what it is today and um the insulins that we had were much slower they didn't uh they didn't quite act in the same way and so um when you're type one you have to take multiple types of insulin one of them is uh sort of an extended release that uh covers the fasted state where it's like everything that's happening underneath food exercise activity uh you know emotional stuff that can affect your blood sugars things like that so um at the time the insulin that i was on it has this notorious like harsh peak to it and so 
uh, if I didn't eat on a schedule, regardless of whether I was hungry or not, I would have like horrendous low blood sugars and, um, low blood sugars. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of, of like info on that specific, like symptoms and stuff. So low blood sugars can come with all these like hosts of symptoms and side effects. So one of them is like really crazy shakiness and like confusion, uh, profuse sweating, sometimes vomiting. Uh, these are for like severe low blood sugars. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, if I didn't eat on this forced schedule, whether I was hungry or not, I would have horrible low blood sugars. And, you know, I, I have uh, some deep associations with orange juice that um, <laughs> will never change. <laughs> I can't eat oranges or drink orange juice at all now uh, because of that. And, you know, it, it was, I had to be regimented about eating. And I always had to make sure that I had like candies or glucose tablets on me at all times. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm right next to my, I'm in my bed right now and I have uh, glucose packets right here. Like they're always within arm's length, no matter what. Um, so that was, that was part of my childhood that obviously was like deeply impactful. And um, other than my uncle's, you know, I was the only person that I knew who had type one diabetes. Like I didn't meet other kids or other people with type one until I was like, oh, when did I meet Kat? Uh, fifth grade. So I spent, I spent most of my early years, like, you know, the freak with needles that all my classmates were like, you're allergic to sugar. And I'm like, you're so wrong. <laughs> you don't even know how wrong you are but I'm just gonna leave it alone and like let you be wrong um which is uh some something I've had to like carry through into my life like there's some pretty deep-seated misconceptions about diabetes in the general public that I've given up being upset about and I've given up fighting uh mostly because it's for my own sanity but you know, when I was younger, it was always like, you know, I had to fight to, to advocate for myself because nobody else knew what they were dealing with or what I was dealing with and how it affected me. Like I could tell, I could tell people, oh, my blood sugar is low, but they don't know what that means. They don't know that that's a potentially life-threatening situation that's immediate, you know? So it's just, it, it's one of those things like there, there's no aspect of life that like type one doesn't affect. Um, but anyway, back to, to childhood stuff. Um, so I was like in and out of lows a lot, um, high blood sugars, the, the symptoms that they can have is like, you're just so parched. You can't, you can't drink enough water. It, it, there's, no amount of liquid that's going to make that dry mouth and, and thirst go away. Um, there, for me, one of the biggest things is I get really ragey when my blood sugar is high. And um, it's taken me a while to kind of sift through like the physiological things versus the psychological things. 
And there's a, a threshold of blood sugar level above which like that irritability is, is almost like physiologic. It's not that I'm angry because my blood sugar is high, you know, I'm mad that it's high. I'm like irritable and short tempered and quick to fly off the handle because my brain isn't functioning the way it's supposed to because it's like swimming in blood sugar. And I can, I can physically feel it when my blood sugar comes back down under a certain level. It's like there's this, this tightness in my chest that sort of eases. So, you know, when I was a kid, I was this wad of anger and resentment. And I was, I was not like, emotionally stable (laughs) because of it um you know so I had a lot of problems with like outbursts and I would get into fights with people a lot and um you know kind of kind of like swinging back and forth between these like low episodes that leave me like confused and uncomfortable and and anxious and then bouncing back up into high blood sugars where I'm like angry and pissed off about everything so I just you know, there was no stability in that. Um, and, you know, because I was so young, like that was just life. I didn't know any better. Uh, and, ah, man, I, I wasn't going to get into it this soon in the conversation, but I'll tell you anyway. So I had this moment um, a couple of years ago, I made some very drastic lifestyle changes, like overhauled everything I was doing, what I ate, who I spent my time with, what I focused on, um, you know, just like took a complete 180. And I found ways to sort of stabilize my blood sugar. And most of it had to do with food and insulin management. And I had to just overhaul my entire regimen. But once I did that, I found this sort of like profound inner stability that I had never even known existed before and I remember very clearly I was sitting at work one day and I was like oh I need to check my blood sugar it's been a minute so I checked it and it was stable and it was exactly where I wanted it to be and it hit me that that was the first time in my entire life at like 27 years old that I had experienced that And it was like somebody slapped me upside the head and I just started crying, like happy tears of just like, I finally found the thing that I I didn't even know was missing. And then of course I went around to everybody I could possibly find and be like, I found it. And they're like, okay, calm down. It's okay. (laughs) No, that's amazing. I I love that um, because one of the things about mental health about counseling is that almost well our field has a really bad history of like change your thoughts change your life and mm-hmm. when you live with chronic illness or chronic pain even just anxiety that's a physiological thing happening in your body and yes sometimes your thoughts and your mindset can help calm your nervous system and it can help get you into a place where then you can go and do the other things that will then further calm your body down mm-hmm. but it sounds like you were fighting yourself all these years because, and I'm, I have no doubt you probably had lots of people try to fix you behaviorally. Sure. Yeah. 
I, I've been to so many anger management classes, like, <laughs> uh, you know, I never got like violent with it, but uh, outbursts happen, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but to that point, one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was that um, I have this sort of like mindfulness practice with my blood sugars. And when I say that, I don't mean just sort of sit still and, and watch your thoughts like people generally see with mindfulness. It's like there are certain specific thought patterns and trends that I experience during lows and during highs. And they occur before the physical symptoms happen. So if I'm aware of what my thoughts are doing, I can catch a low or catch a high before I hit the point where I'm shaky and dizzy and I feel uncomfortable or something like that. So one thing that um, I've, I've had to observe, but also distance myself from is when I'm low, I have like homicidal thoughts. Like I, <laughs> they're not pretty. And if I start getting stuck in this rut of like, nah, 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 I don't like this person. I want to do bad things to them. I'm like, hey, check your blood sugar. I check it. It's almost always low, like without fail. So in that way, I've kind of learned how to like both manage that like emotional state, but also the physical stuff because I can catch it before it gets physical. This is so important because a lot of us, I mean, a lot of the work that I do with clients is around self-compassion and non-judgment. And it, that sounds so fluffy, but if you were sitting there judging yourself for the anger and the thoughts that you had, you, you can't be mindful with it. And then you can't connect the dots. And it's just like, oh, I'm a terrible person because I have these thoughts. And it's like, no, this is a normal response to what happens when your blood sugar is so low that your body could physically die. And mm -hmm. so you're going into fight or flight and what happens in fight or flight, you want to hurt somebody like you're fighting for I, your I life. Fight. I fight. I am. I am always a fighter. I've like, <laughs> I could go into details about that one, but I, I know for a fact I'm, I'm a fight everything and everyone kind of person when I hit that. And sure. it's clearly kept you alive all these years. And mm -hmm. now, you know, I think that's the thing we are in fight or flight while we have to be. And then when we can finally find some peace and some calm, whether that is by changing like where we are in our environment or changing your diet or changing like these things can, they're just, they're tools that can get us to a place where it sounds like you've gotten yourself. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the tools thing because I find with, with blood sugar management, it's, it's about having the tools to address what I'm seeing and one of the things I wanted to, to include in our conversation today was about how uh, you can have these emotional responses tied up with your success and I'm putting this in air quotes as a diabetic and um, sidebar I'm, I'm heavy involved in the type one online community but specifically for those people who are either parents of children who are newly diagnosed and uh, adults who are newly diagnosed. And I participate 
heavily in those two very specific communities at the request of the admins of those forums because I've been diabetic for so long and I've seen, you know, 30 years of what it's like to live with this stuff. So they're, they've asked me to participate and, and, you know, give my perspective, but also the tools and the knowledge. And, you know, it's really easy to fall into this trap of like, oh, my blood sugar's high. I'm a failure. Or, oh, my blood sugar is low. I'm a terrible person. Or, you know, whatever it is. We have these quantifiable metrics that we must pay attention to at all times. And, you know, you're given these guidelines of a very specific range to keep your blood sugars in. And if it's not inside those range, the range you've been given, it's really easy to think that you're failing or that you're a horrible person, you're a bad diabetic, you know, all this stuff. And then that, <laughs> this is so loaded. There's so many things involved in it, you know. Uh, then, you know, you have to go to the, the endocrinologist every three months and submit your blood sugar log for them to look at. And then be judged on whether you're quote a good diabetic or not. And that's one of the things that I've I've really struggled with my whole life is is this like deep-seated resentment that I must constantly be scrutinized by an external source that also doesn't have any personal experience with what I am dealing with on a minute-to-minute -minute basis for my entire life. And I find that uh, there's this there's this mindset with the medical professionals where they think they know how to manage diabetes. And because they think they know and they give you guidelines, if you are struggling or you are not achieving success, then you are simply non-compliant with their guidelines and it's your own fault for struggling and you're a bad diabetic. And I know you're shaking your head and, and I have this like deep well of rage about that, that I just kind of keep in the corner, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I would like, I would like to see somebody else try to do it and, and have that attitude and maintain it. It's so um, unfair to have obviously lived experience, you know, it, it doesn't always sometimes you need more but I think lived experience is the piece to yes. to healing it's yeah there's a lot of rage here for me as well where I'm like med the medical professional just not professionals not listening and um, it's why I love functional medicine so much although that's often very much out of reach for people um, because it's often not covered by insurance um, and so there's there's a whole bunch of that but even in the mental health field it's like uh, how, all of my clients that have been to therapist after therapist and maybe, and I even have quite a few clients who have been in therapy since they were children. And it's always the same message of like, you need to try harder. You're not doing this regimen. You're not practicing this enough. And it's like, but really, because I'm trying everything I can, but it don't, it doesn't work in isolation. It takes a team. And so maybe you can speak a little bit to like, what was that turning point for you where you said you, you overhauled their, your life and what supports do you think were or do you know were in your life at the time that kind of helped you finally make that jump 
Mm, okay. Uh, so long-term uncontrolled blood sugars cause nerve damage. They cause microvascular damage. They can cause musculoskeletal problems. They cause uh, every part of your body is damaged by long-term uncontrolled blood sugars. And I'm telling you this because that's uh, integral to what happened and why it changed. So when I was 25 years old, I discovered a spot in my vision and it never went away. And I tried to convince myself for a little while that it was just my contacts. And, and <laughs> then I went back to my glasses and I was like, well, it didn't go away, damn. Okay, now I have to go to the eye doctor. And uh, so I went to the eye doctor and he diagnosed me with diabetic retinopathy. And what that means is that the blood vessels on your retina have started to break down and leak blood. And that can cause uh, swelling and fluid in your eye. It can cause also, um, the overgrowth of new blood vessels to try to compensate for the damage. So unchecked, this causes blindness. And um, so I told you that my uncles are type one. Well, one of my uncles died at 37 from type one complications. And I was only seven when he died. But what I knew of what happened and why was that he had basically gone blind and then slowly become disabled until he had no quality of life and lived in my grandparents' basement until he died. And so I, at 25 years old, learning that I'm starting to go blind, I was like, oh my God, this is the end. I'm going to die just like Uncle Dick in my parents' basement. I'm like, I'm dead. I'm dying. This is, this is the beginning of dying. Oh my God. And I remember just sitting in the parking lot after that eye appointment, just like hysterical on the phone with my mom, just like, I, I like I'm tearing up talking about it, you know? And um, I was in deep depression and denial for about a year after that. And uh, man, during that year, um, I was also in a pretty terrible relationship with somebody who just uh, could not be the support I needed, especially not for that kind of heavy stuff. And I was 25 years old. So like, you know, all my friends, they're like healthy, they're pairing off with other people. They're maybe talking about getting married or like graduating from college. And I'm over here like, I'm about to die. <laughs> um, so I was not okay. And uh, trying to think of like how to pare this story down because <laughs> there's so much to it. Um, I bet, yeah. It sounds like ultimately, I mean, we're talking about community and we're talking about like not like going from not having to su support to having support. And yeah, there's probably no clear linear connection. But. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll say this. I didn't have support at the time because uh, my parents live in Arizona 
and I live in Georgia, and there's a good, like, 1,800 miles between us, and my then-boyfriend was um, not only emotionally unavailable most of the time, but also he had a job that had him traveling for half of every week, and then every fourth week he would be gone for five days, so I was both with somebody who was emotionally unavailable and also physically unavailable for more than half the time. And he was the type of partner that uh, did not like when I had friends and hung out with them when he wasn't there. So I really didn't have much at the time and I felt so alone. And, you know, um, I was struggling with this, you know, existential crisis, basically, of, like, I'm gonna die like my uncle did, and I'm only 25 years old, and then didn't have anybody, you know. I spent a lot of time on the phone crying with my parents. <laughs> um, I also had, uh, man, uh, the panic attacks that I had during that point in my life were crippling. Um, I'm sure I was mixed with blood sugar, highs and lows and like it's all so intermingled so yeah sounds incredibly difficult to manage it was yes and um at the time so I had previously to that been deeply afraid of needles Mm. which you would think living my entire life with a chronic illness where I'm required to take injections every single day, multiple times a day, I wouldn't have this problem, but that is not true. <laughs> and uh, I used to have this, this little device that um, it was spring loaded and you would put the syringe into it and then you could not see the needle. And then you just put it up to your skin, you push a button, it shoots the needle in for you. And then you push the plunger in and you pull it out and everything's fine. So I had had one of those my whole life. So I didn't have both the physical and the emotional skills to give myself a shot with a bare needle. And then during this existential crisis period of my life, um, that device broke and I proceeded to lose it (laughs) because I, without taking my shot, First of all, if I don't take any insulin, I'll end up in the hospital in diabetic ketoacidosis, which is potentially life-threatening. Um, second of all, I can't eat if I don't take insulin. So, you know, it was like slap face first with you're going to have to deal with this and you're going to have to figure out how to work through this so that you're not literally having a panic attack every time you have to take a shot because that's like five to eight times a day. And who wants to live with panic attacks that many times a day, right? Yeah. And was it difficult to get a new device? Is that why you had to switch to needles? Not difficult, but you know, uh, I can't just go to the store and buy one. I have to order one. And even with overnight shipping, there's still a whole overnight time period mm-hmm. where I didn't have it. Um, so what happened was I ordered a new one and I either broke or lost it three times in the space of only a couple of months and I finally sat down with myself and I was like okay I'm pretty sure that this is a universal sign that I need to figure this out 
I love like, that. You can't, you can't get much clearer than like, hey, 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 do it. Um, so are you familiar with exposure therapy? Yeah, and it can be incredibly helpful or harmful depending on, depending on, so. Yes, so in my case, it was extremely helpful because uh, I don't really have a choice in not taking my insulin unless I want to kill myself in a very slow, painful, ugly way. So I was like, okay, how do I, how do I get myself through this? And here, I have a syringe right here. I will show you. So I just, I just kind of like, like familiarized myself with the thing. And I was like, held it in your hand. You touched it. You looked at it. You just got comfortable with it little by little. And you did this on your own. Yeah, I did. Because I realized I don't have the coping skills to deal with this. I don't know how to handle this for myself, but I do know that I have to be okay with syringes. So how do I be okay with syringes? Well, I mean, you have dogs. I've trained dogs. How do you get dogs to be okay with certain things? It sounds trite, but it's not, you know, it's exposure and positive reinforcement, right? So that's what I did with myself. And I would just like do the hard thing and then be like, oh, I did it. Yeah, 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 I did it. Oh my God. And um, I love it. Yeah, yeah. So like after months of doing that, I finally got to the point where I was comfortable with the needle and I could give myself a shot without like panicking, but I would still have to be like, okay, all right, on the count of three. Okay. And (laughs) that one took me a long time to get over that part of it too. So anyway, this was like, I'm 32. This is like eight years ago now. Um, and I'm, I'm fine now. I don't even have problems with it, but it took a while. Um, so during all of this, uh, extreme emotional growth that I was having to put myself through because I was faced with like severe complications and disability and a life that I did not want to live. Um, I also finally came around to, uh, accepting that I needed to treat the retinopathy that I had been diagnosed with. And so I sought out an ophthalmologist and um, the treatment for me was um, gruesome and panic inducing. Um, They give you injections into your eye. Um, Oh no. Yeah. Yes, I can even see on your face the memory of like having to go through that. That just I'm so glad you're able to talk about it right now because like this this does, yeah, that sounds incredibly difficult. Yeah, it was. Um so that was traumatic. Um they ended up having to give me Valium at the eye doctor because I had a panic attack one time and I punched the doctor in the face. <laughs> because she was about to to hey, give me session. fight or flight like <laughs> I told you I told you I fight <laughs> um yeah so so anyway uh I was home one day from the eye doctor because they they put this uh this medication into 
the uh, vitreous fluid in your eye, which is sort of like this um, jelly part between the retina and the lens on the front. So the they inject it into that. And then, you know, there's this sort of cloudiness and it can take a day or two to resolve. And just because I knew myself and my emotional state around it, I would always just take the whole day off from work, uh, especially because they gave me Valium. And I, I don't know if you have any experience with Valium, but how to say this while you're on it everything's great when you're coming down off of it the uh emotional processing that you should have been doing while experiencing those emotions happens later but without any of the context for what was happening while it was happening and uh given how freaked out and upset and panicked I was about all of it I would basically like be unable to freak out during and then I'd freak out later um, so yeah. I'd take the day off and allow myself to just process everything I couldn't see out of one eye I had no depth perception I was just a hot mess I was a hot hot mess and and you um, took care of yourself during that time I think this is another important point because um while it might sound obvious to like Yes, take the day off. So many people continue to work through these really difficult emotions and these difficult situations. And a part of self-care is taking the time for yourself mm-hmm. and reducing the shame around not being able, in quotes, to perform or to produce or all of these different things. Yeah. I was really fortunate at the time that I had a boss who was at least compassionate. And I told her what was going on. And she was just like, I was at work after a treatment one day because I just went back to work after it. This was before they started giving me the Valium. And I was, my one eye was dilated like this. And I was like, you know, I'm not okay, but I'm here. And my boss was like, Allie, why are you here? Go. And I was like, I'm sorry, but I have stuff to do. And she was like, do you think that that stuff's not still going to be here tomorrow? Get out of my warehouse. Go, go home. And I was like, oh, I love okay. It. Yeah, yeah, she was great. Um, so after that, I was like, oh, I need to, I need to take care of myself. Okay. Um, so while I was home during one of those episodes, um, episodes, eh, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean. Uh, while I was home, I was recovering and I was, on the computer and um I, I remember very clearly the house I lived in didn't have any heat and it was the coldest day of the year and so I was sitting in a chair wrapped in a blanket in front of a space heater with the blanket like over the space heater so it was like making a tent of warm and I was on the computer and I just had this like this thought kind of come into my head you know it it didn't feel like my thought it felt like somebody was telling me something and it was, I have to figure out a better way because what I'm experiencing right now is traumatic and I cannot keep doing this to myself because every doctor I saw told me that I was going to have to get injections into my eye every month for the rest of my life. And I was like, absolutely not. 
but with a lot more expletives. Like, uh, no, 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 no. I just, in my soul, I just, I rejected that. I was like, I will not put myself through that. I can't. There must be a better way, and I have to find it. So um, I was also experiencing other diabetes complications, um, specifically very severe digestion problems. Um, and I would, uh, I would wake up in the morning and vomit everything I had eaten the day before that had been undigested in my stomach all night. And this would happen pretty much every day. And if I didn't puke, I'd be so nauseated for the rest of the day that I couldn't even eat. And it obviously affected my blood sugars because you're supposed to take insulin for your food. But if your food doesn't digest, but the insulin hits your bloodstream, you get severe lows and then crazy highs later. And like I said, I was a hot mess. So, well, your, anyway, your illness was a hot mess. You seem to be figuring it out like a champ. <laughs> Yes, yes, you're right. Now, uh, okay, I'm going to come back to my story for a second. I like the way that you said that because over this process, one of the things that I realized is that with this type of chronic illness, if you ignore it, it gets loud and louder and louder and louder and louder until you are forced to pay attention to it. And sometimes that can mean you land yourself in the emergency room. And sometimes it can mean that uh, you have a public episode of mania where you end up in the back of a cop car because that's happened to me with a severe low blood sugar before. And, you know, you, you cannot ignore it because it will not be ignored. And it's an unfortunate thing that how do you accept that? You know what I mean? If all you ever want is for this to go away, but the way to make it go away is to pay attention to it. Like, whoa, that, that's going to screw with your head, right? And one of the things I've learned as I've come through out the other side of this like deep <laughs> hole I had found myself in is that you have to kind of like pay attention to your, the wellness of your future self. And in order to take care of myself tomorrow, I have to take steps today to make that happen. Um, so back to how the changes happened. So while I'm on the computer and I'm desperately finding, trying to find anything I possibly can, I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating. I sat in front of that computer for 24 hours straight I didn't do anything but eat and pee and then go right back to my chair. And I looked through every Google search, every internet forum I could find. I was on Reddit. I was on all the diabetes forums. I was on Facebook. Everything that I could possibly, possibly find. And I found some horrifying things where I was like, oh, nope, can't look at that. And I found a few little, like, breadcrumb nuggets. And then... I stumbled across a blog from a doctor who is himself type one and also an athlete. And he had started experimenting with a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet for athletic performance, but then discovered that it helps with his diabetes. So he wrote an ebook and I downloaded that immediately and I read it and I was like, 
this is counter to every single thing I've ever been told. There must be something to this because if everything I've ever been told right now is what I feel like I need to reject in order to find my way to success, then, okay, what's this all about? And then after I read the ebook, by the way, that doctor's name is uh, Keith Runyon for context. And so, does he still his produce, book, I'm curious if he still produces um, information and, and people can go find this if, if they're looking for that? He has a blog. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head what it's called, but I can send it to you and you can put it in the show notes. Great, yeah. Uh, cool. So the next reference I have for you is this one line that was in that book. And this is the book that changed my life. And it's called The Diabetes Solution by Dr. Richard K. Bernstein. And (sighs) this book is like the encyclopedia of how to manage your blood sugars, right? And I went on his website, I read his biography, and he is, I think at this point, he's like 86 or so. And he was diagnosed when he was, I want to say a teenager. And um, his blood sugars were just wildly out of control. And, you know, he was experienced, by the time he was a young adult, just like me, he was experiencing complications. And, you know, he had a wife and children and his uh, low blood sugar episodes were so severe for him that they were affecting his relationships with his family and children and work and all this stuff. And so um, same thing for him. He was like, I have to figure out what to do. I'm dying and I need to do something different. So what he did, um, his wife was a physician and because she was a physician, she could order medical equipment. And at the time, this was I want to say like 50 years ago. Um, So at the time, at-home blood glucose monitoring did not exist. You could only get your blood glucose checked at the doctor or at the hospital. Otherwise, you had to do um, a urine test where you had to sort of like do a little chemistry and like put urine in a vial and add stuff to it and it would change color and that would tell you how much urine, or sorry, how much glucose was in your urine, which is a very inefficient way of doing that. I would say, yeah. You can't just that, like but. eat something and then pee and like that's, whereas like now you can take your blood sugar and I'm sure it's a much shorter time between eating and checking. Oh, oh, now I have <laughs> a sensor on my arm and I wave my phone over it and it tells me what my blood sugar is. I love that. (laughs) I know, right? It's great. Um, So anyway, long story short, he gets this uh, device that's meant to be for uh, emergency rooms to test people's blood sugars to find out whether they were unconscious from low blood sugar or whether they were just drunk because uh, the outward symptoms of those two things are very similar. So he gets that. He's an engineer by trade. And so he starts Gay, uh, collecting data points on his blood sugar and monitoring them. And he starts adjusting his insulin and his food based on the data points that he's getting from his blood sugar meter. And throughout this testing and experimenting process, he developed methods for how to manage your blood sugars. And then he went to his doctor about it. And his doctor was like, what? No, why would we do that? Like, then my patients wouldn't come to me for help. Um, right. I see you covering your face. I agree. Yes. 
So um, unfortunately, that attitude is still very prevalent today in the Diabetes Society. Um, so anyway, long story short, this biography deeply resonated with me. And I bought this man's book. I ordered it overnight. I took the next day off from work, even though I had already taken a day before. And I sat there and I waited for UPS on the porch. <laughs> and I got this book. And this book is, is fat. It's, it's like a thousand pages of how to manage your blood sugars. And I read it cover to cover in like a day and a half. And it just, it blew my mind because it, I, I in the 20 some odd years of being diabetic at the time, I had never heard any of this information from anyone. And the first thing that happened was I got just infuriated because I was like, you were willing to let me die when this information was available. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so. And I think what I'm hearing throughout the thread of your story is that you didn't have like support in the people around you, but you found ways to support yourself through this. And part of that was taking time. You allowed yourself time off from work. You used the computer that you had to not just research and go down anxiety rabbit holes, which Hey, maybe you've done that too. Cause I think we all have at some point or another, but you actually use that time to find something that was going to help. And then it just sounds like piece by piece, the book, mm -hmm. the blogs, the, you know, the new information allowed you to start like putting the puzzle pieces together and building the support that you, that you have now. Yeah, totally. And you're right. I, I did. I, I remember clearly having to come to a realization that I was not going to find the support that I needed. So if I needed it, where could I find it? I have to find it for myself. And, you know, if, if I'm the only one that I can rely on for that, well, okay, cool. I don't know how to do that, but I'm going to figure it out. And that's what I did. And, you know, since then, just slowly and incrementally, I have built the support system around myself that I do need. And, you know, I've, I've cultivated relationships and, and sought out information and all the things that I did actually need. But I, I had to hit that low point of realizing I don't have what I need. And now what? Now what do I do? find it go find it because I, I'm I am the type of person that I want actionable solutions for the things that I find challenging and you know type 1 diabetes is is deeply challenging okay so if everything I think I know isn't working well now it's time to go find what can work right and so I found this book and, you know, it was, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done for myself that has been the most rewarding because I had to unlearn everything I thought I knew. I had to accept that I was really sick and that I wasn't healthy. And I 
couldn't pretend like I was okay anymore. And I had to allow myself to not be okay. And then I had to figure out how to apply all of these tools for management of my blood sugars and my diabetes so that I could be okay. But I had to be okay with not being okay for a while. And it took, it took two years to really like adapt and understand what to do and how to do it and when to do it and what to eat and how to take my insulin. And, you know, it, that kind of tinkering never ends, but, you know, unlearning everything that you thought was gospel about managing your health and then <laughs> finding this whole new thing, like sometimes the cognitive dissonance is painful. <laughs> And yes, I think it keeps a lot of us stuck and we kind of get into the shame spiral of like blaming ourselves, but cognitive dissonance is, it's incredibly difficult to navigate. And I'm, I'm curious as we kind of come up to the end here, I feel like you've shared so much about kind of how you again, navigated seriously, just the the most difficult of situations. Um, Mm -hmm you mentioned that you're in parent support or you're in like groups that are geared towards like helping parents support their kids. And I'm curious what kind of, I'm sure you've got lots of logistical advice to like find this doctor or do this thing, you know, but do you have some emotional, what, Mm. what can parents do either for themselves or to support their kids in dealing with the emotions that come along with this illness? Mm. That, that question comes up a lot. And I don't have any cut and dry answers for it, but the biggest things in my support network that I lean on are my people. And by my people, I mean, you know, my partner, my parents, my friends, my, my, my circle, my people not telling me what I should or shouldn't be doing not don't don't wag your finger at me tell me that I hear you and I know you're struggling I know that you will come through this and it will be okay and uh one thing that I have with both my parents and my best friend is um do you want advice or do you want me to listen and I love that because sometimes I just want to pop off and sometimes I do need advice, but most of the time I don't need nuts and bolts advice. I have the nuts and bolts tools that I need. So what I really need is for you to just let me like blow off some steam and be upset about it for a minute and then I'll be okay. Or, you know, it's very rare now, but on the rare occasion where I have a breakdown, where I got to cry about it, it's probably better if you just let me cry and don't say anything. You can't make that better. So what you can do is be present and acknowledge that this is how I feel, you know? And I think for, for kids, it's, so heartbreaking we want to take the pain away for our kids you know but we can't and and we want desperately to give them 
everything to make them happy and healthy and successful. And this chronic illness comes along and it's like, ha ha, nope. And (laughs) (laughs) so, so what do you do? Right. So you teach them the nuts and bolts of how to manage their disease to the best of their abilities within their capability and within the framework of the lifestyle that they want. And you just allow them to feel however it is. Now, I will say this, hearkening back to the beginning of our conversation where I was talking about that sort of like ragey feeling with highs. Uh, one thing I think is really important is to recognize that because our blood sugars uh, can create emotional side effects, um, this is a twofold thing. One, uh, don't react to it. And by that, I mean, like, if your kid's upset and spouting off with a mouth, don't spout back at them. <laughs> don't punish Maybe. them. Don't tell them how wrong they are, how disrespectful they're being. Maybe you can have a conversation about it later in a loving and conversational way, but just condemning them for that reaction does no one any good. And it actually ex- exacerbates the problem. Yes. And what else exacerbates the problem is in the middle of being upset about something, if you ask a diabetic, have you checked your blood sugar right now? Oh, no. <laughs> it's like you telling someone. Right. <laughs> I bet it's like telling someone to take a deep breath. Calm down. Just take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're totally. about to get punched. <laughs> totally. Um, I've, I've spouted uh, go F yourself at quite a few people for that. Just like... I know that you're right, but I don't like that you're right. Yeah, that's not the time. It really isn't the time. Like, in fact, the time is like, it doesn't really matter if I go check it. Like what the emotion is here, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's here. So let's just like, let it blow over. (laughs) Right, totally. But you know, uh, to that vein, um, I know you asked me about uh, what advice I give to kids, but um, something that I have learned with myself is that I am well aware of how my emotions are affected by my blood sugars. And I have learned over time that the very best thing I can do for myself and my relationships with other people is to just keep my mouth shut and keep it to myself because it's transitory and it, it doesn't matter that I'm like ragey in that moment. I cannot make it somebody else's problem but I can accept that you know this is how I feel right now and I can't change the fact that I feel this way but I can't take it out on everybody else so I just need to be quiet and keep it to myself and give myself time to be okay until I am okay and that's that's a a, hmm, I I wouldn't take maturity it does it does but it's perfect advice and it actually is what I would say to a parent that I if I were working with a parent on this as parents we model behaviors to our kids and so if you can be silent and calm while they're raging you Mm -hmm. are not telling them that this behavior is always okay for the rest of your life and you can do this whenever you want that's what parents think but your Mm -hmm. quietness and your stillness actually teaches them actually this is what we do when we have these emotions we calm ourselves we center ourselves and we wait for it to pass so mm-hmm. I think it's beautiful advice totally I do this with uh, my stepdaughter you know she she struggles with anger management stuff as well and 
I feel perfectly qualified to help her with this one because I've, I've dealt with this my whole life. And uh, one thing with her that I do is if I recognize that she's getting overwhelmed and upset, I'll ask her, do you need a minute? Do you need to go to your room? Do you want me to leave you alone? Because if you do need that, take it. And 9.9 times out of 10, the answer is yes. And she goes away for a minute and she can collect herself and then she can come back and she's cool. But I can't be upset that she's upset because then we end up in this like, feedback loop. Basically. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Alex, thank you so much for sharing all of your story. I feel like people are really going to get a lot out of this. The emotional ride is something that is really hard to put into words. And so to hear someone else's personal story and some of these really specific examples is it's just really helpful. So I really appreciate it. I do too. I'd like to close with, uh, I have come out of all of that struggle and distress that I was in and found that stability. And I know how to come back to that. So life now is, I could not have even conceived of it at the beginning. I still have a chronic illness that will never change, but I am not in that deep well of all the things <laughs> that were, were digging me down into it anymore. And that's, that's one of the takeaways that I wanted to bring too. Yeah. I think, I think again, that's so important because we often just hear about like how we got over it. And so in your story, we're hearing what the struggle looked like while you were working through it. And that's just so helpful. Yeah, it is. Thank you. If you learned something new today, consider writing it down in your phone notes or journal and make that new neural pathway light up. Better yet, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram, email me, or leave a voice memo for us to play on the next show. The way you summarize your takeaways can be the perfect little soundbite that someone else might need in order to better absorb the same lesson. Lastly, leaving a review really helps others find this podcast, so please do so if you found this episode helpful.